the National Archives podcast series, Tracing Railway Ancestors, presented by Chris Heather. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Chris Heather, and I work as the transport specialist here at the National Archives. And this afternoon's talk is on railway staff records for British railway companies up to 1947. So this afternoon, we're going to be looking at staff records, but we'll also look briefly at other records which are not strictly staff records, but which include mention of staff. And hopefully I can help to open up what some people think of as stuffy, perhaps impenetrable and elusive records. But first of all, I'd like to touch on the sheer scale of the railways in Britain in the 19th century, which I think we've, uh, we tend to forget what a large employer it was. If someone mentions to you that their ancestor was a railway employee, you probably, first of all, think that they might have been an engine driver, and they may well have been, but there were a lot more professions and trades employed by the railways than just engine drivers. There were firemen, shunters and guards. There were people that worked on the stations, porters, station masters, ticket collectors, people who built or maintained the track, including plate layers, labourers, gangers and gangmen, level crossing gatemen, signalmen, fencers, crane men, ash felters, all sorts of manual labour was represented. There were people who designed and built the trains, boilermakers, engineers, draftsmen, glaziers, carpenters and painters. And then there were those who designed and built the structures that the trains ran on, including bridges, canals and viaducts. I mentioned canals. Don't forget that the railway companies were responsible for the canal, so you will find lock keepers and boatmen amongst these records. Then there were the services provided by the railway companies. Services such as catering, dining car attendants would be included. There were hotels run by, by railway companies, so you've got hotel staff, kitchen staff, van drivers. Many of the labouring labour work that was carried out by the railways was done by horses uh, instead of motor vehicles. Motor vehicles wouldn't have been introduced until around about 1900, so anything before that was, would use horses. So you'll find draymen, grooms, blacksmiths and farriers mentioned. And then you've got people working behind the scenes, cleaners, lavatory attendants, typists, clerks, storesmen, and so on. So it's a vast array of people covered by these records, and it's not simply engine drivers. Now, just a few statistics. One company alone in 1897, the London and Northwestern, employed 70,000 people. Now, to put that in context, the size of the British Army without the officers in 2013 was 78,000. So it's only 8,000 less than the British Army, and that's one railway company. In 1948, British Railways employs, employed 641,000 people. The period that we're looking at covers from 1825 to 1947, so there are potentially millions of employees during that time span. And in the first 75 years of railways, 
Britain had 18,500 miles of track laid in a country that's only 600 miles long. The National Archives has over 1,200 rail series. That's not including AN series, which is mainly for records after nationalisation. So to understand how the records are arranged and where to find staff records, it helps to know how the railways developed. The railway can be divided into four sections on a timeline from about, well, from 1825 to 1923. There were usually over 100 different railway companies at any one time. In fact, at the back of David Hawking's book, there is a list of 991 companies. They didn't all exist at the same time, but one would take over another, some would amalgamate and so on. So you get different companies bubbling up at different times. The earliest railway that we have records for um, is the Stockton and Darlington Railway, uh, and that was the first passenger railway. There were railways before that, but they were horse-drawn and mainly industrial. From 1923 to 1947, there were only four companies. All the smaller companies were combined into four big companies, the big four. That's the Great Western, the London Midland Scottish, London Northeastern, and Southern Railways. Then from 1948, there was only one company. All the railway companies were nationalised. And in our present era, from 1994, there are currently about 30 companies that are franchises. Now, staff records after 1948, post-nationalisation, have not normally been retained, but there are some staff record cards containing summaries of employment and they've been sent to county record offices for each of the British Rail regions. Now it may be that if you try to track these down you'll be told that they're closed or they're not open to public inspection due to the Data Protection Act but um, if you want to track them down you, you need to go to the relevant county record office. From 1994 you would need to contact Network, Network Rail or the Association of Train Operating Companies to inquire about staff records. So the period we have records for at the National Archives is from 1825 to 1947. Staff records survive for 94 pre-1923 companies. That's 94 different companies. There are another 44 companies which have records that relate to staff employees, although they're not strictly staff records. So that makes 141 companies that are represented, which is about 14% of the 991 companies that existed at one time. So you have, you could say, a 14% chance of, chance of finding someone in these records. Now, there isn't a secret way to find out where the records are for your person. The normal family history sources should give you a good start. If you use the census or birth, marriage or death certificates to find where somebody lived, when they lived there and what their occupation was, that should help you find their service records amongst the railway staff records. If you don't know when someone started work, just add 14 years to their date of birth 
because many railway employees began their working life very young as apprentices, and very often it was a job for life. It also ran in families. So once you've found out where they lived and when they were there, you can then use one of the railway atlases, which you can find in our library or in a bookshop, which will lay out the different railway lines for the area concerned. Admittedly, if your person lived in one of the big cities, London or Birmingham, then you may have difficulty. You will have to try all the relevant railway companies one by one. Once you've found which company you think they may have worked for, you can use the table in the research guide called Railway Workers Further Research, which is available on our website, to track down which series of rail records is applicable and then work your way through them. The railway records are arranged more or less in alphabetical order, starting at Rail 1 for the Abbotsbury Railway Company, going all the way through to Rail 774 for the Yorkshire Dales Railway Company. Now, when you've actually found a staff register and you're looking through it, supposing you're looking for a porter or a shunter or a parcel van driver, you'll probably find that the volume is divided up into different types of occupation which don't normally um, relate to the words that we're used to when we think of railway employees. There'll be things like civil engineering staff, cartage, locomotive carriage, wagon and mechanical engineering staff and so on. Again, there is a table in the research guide which breaks this down. So if you're looking for a groom or a wagoner, then you might look under cartage, for example or if you're looking for a guard or a porter, you'd look under operating traf traffic and coaching staff. Sometimes these sections will be in separate volumes for a particular railway company. Another railway company may have just had one register with all, with all of them in. It just depends on how the company kept their records. So what do railway staff records look like? Well, some of us who've been doing family history for a while will think that maybe they're like military records, army service records, where you get four pages with lots of information, next of kin, previous occupation, all that sort of thing. Or perhaps um, you, might, you may think it's a, like a naval record, where you get one long page with all the ships down the side, which ships they served on, the colour of their hair, the colour of their eyes, date of birth, place of birth, and so on. Well, I'm afraid a lot of railway records are not like that you get perhaps one page with just a date of birth, when they entered service for the company, what their job title was, and their rate of pay. Sometimes they are as bland as that. Sometimes you'll get something a bit extra. A lot of the records that I've seen have a remarks column, and that's the column where you're, you, you may find extra information. I've got an example here for Robert James, who was born on the 14th of March, 1856, he joined the company um, in 1874 at two shillings a day. He worked his way up from cleaner to engine man, and he was granted a gratuity of two pounds for promptitude in applying the brakes on the 24th of June 1902 at Whitchurch, where the rails were out of line. In 1904, he was granted another gratuity of 12 shillings this time for driving the royal train at the visit of the king and queen to Rayada. 
It notes that in August 1911, he didn't strike. And then, unfortunately, he was suspended for 14 days for causing a collision at landfilling in 1913. In another example, we have a staff record for David Plum. He was suspended for one day for not keeping a sharp lookout for and running his engine into a ballast wagon, damaging the engine and the wagon. On the other side of his page, we see a press cutting regarding him being drunk and disorderly and attempting to strike a police officer. In another example, Evan Williams is dismissed for passing a signal at danger at Tallinn Back Crossing, causing a fatal accident to Ganger Humphreys. A ganger was a man in charge of a gang of labourers, usually laying the track or repairing the track. In 1899, that was. So the staff records are not really about the staff, they're about money. That's what the company is interested in. And remember, these are company records. So they're not designed or written for family historians in mind, with, with them in mind. It's, it's all about money, how much a person is costing the company or how much a company is paying them. In my last example of a true staff record, we have an example which I've included for a couple of reasons. This one relates to George Weber, who worked for the South Devon Railways, but his records can be found in Rail 264, which are Great Western Railway records. This shows that you can find records for a certain person who worked for a certain company in the records of another company, simply because that larger company took them over at one time. So, in the remarks column, we find that George Weber was cautioned in 1881 uh, when his engine was thrown offline on a turntable. The following year, he was fined two shillings for leaving the station without water in the tank, and consequently, his engine failed between Truro and Perrinwell. Then in 1886, he's fined a pound for failing to notice that trucks and a van were not coupled up to the train until he had run about two miles, and then stopping so suddenly as to cause the last truck to brake coupling and run back into collision with the trucks left him on the line, causing considerable damage. That same year, he was running from Falmouth to Truro with an empty engine when he reached the 309-mile post and he felt his engine knock something. He stopped at Perrin to examine his engine and found portions of blood and hair and other matter sufficient to conclude someone had been run over, which proved to be the case, as on arrival at Truro, he was informed that Ganger Collins had been run over and killed. There was a heavy hail and snowstorm at the time which prevented the engineman and the fireman seeing Collins and probably prevented Collins seeing the approaching engine. There was an inquest and the verdict was accidental death, partly in consequence of the weather. However, as a result of this accident, Weber went temporarily out of his mind and was placed in the Bodmin Lunatic Asylum on the 15th of December 1886. He was released the following March and he was re-employed as a cleaner on the 11th of April, 1887. Just to top it all off, there's a note that he was paid £70 in May the following year on account of a disablement by accident. So his whole life was turned upside down simply by doing his job as well as he thought he could do it.
So that's the kind of thing that you can find in staff records, although that sort of much, that much detail is, is fairly rare. But there are other records which are not strictly staff records, but which mention staff, and you may find information in these. I've got five examples. The first one are pay records. These are accounting records, really, recording wages paid to staff. They simply provide lists of names and the amount paid to them. So there's not very much detail on them. It may give their age, and it may give when they started work, and perhaps their station that they're based at, but not much more. The second are voucher books. Again, these are accountants' records, which include receipts for wages paid, vouchers, cashed checks, invoices relating to staff, and that sort of thing. Usually, you will find one or two employees' names on each voucher and their signature. And perhaps, <clears throat> perhaps in their own handwriting, it might be interesting for you to see how they wrote. Um, the third example are board and committee minutes. Don't forget, railway companies are private companies, so they have a board with various committees working to the board, each of which would provide minutes. And these minutes can include movements of staff, promotions, retirements, and disciplinary matters recorded in them. One example is the Great Eastern Railway Old Age Salaried, Salaried and Waged Staff Committee. This was a committee that met every few months to review elderly staff for retirement to see whether they could carry on or not. It gives the name, occupation, station, weekly wage, age, length of service, where a member of, where, whether they were a member of a benefit society or not, and the decision on whether to keep them employed or not. You can see a page from this volume, and you can see Mr Freeman, who is 82 years old, and this volume is dated 1897. So if you work back, he was 10 years old in 1825 when the first passenger railway started. So this man has seen the whole of the railways develop from 1825 to 1897. And he's 82 years old, still employed, and the comment in the comment in the remarks column is that he should come back in a year. So they're still employing him up to 83 years old. Another person on the page is 69 years old, and they've had 50 years service. So this is the kind of thing that you could possibly find. There are other committee minutes, and some committees had the authority to recruit staff, so you will find names recorded in these documents. My fourth example are pensions and benefits records. Some of the larger railway companies ran their own superannuation and benefit funds. For example, the London Northeastern, we have records for in Rail 390. And you can find people mentioned in these records long after they retire, for as long as they live, in fact, because they'll still be claiming their pension. But as well as those records, there are also records from the Railway Benevolent Institution in Rail 1166. This was founded by a group of railway clerks in 1858 to support widows and orphans of children of, of railway officers, such as secretaries, managers, superintendents, engineers, accountants, clerks, and so on, employed on the railways. 
Later on, they opened it up to other roles such as porters, guards, and engine drivers. It was voluntary to subscribe, and the annual report for 1910 includes a list of subscribers, including the king, whose annual membership fee was £26. In that year, there were half a million people employed on the railways, of which 156,000 subscribed to the RBI. That's 31%. Now, in Rail 1166, there are two types of records. There are the grants volumes. These record circumstances where payments need to start, change, or stop. They provide details of the applicant, who's usually the widow, including age, name of husband, place of employment, the railway company for which he worked, length of service, number of children, and date of death. If the payment is for a child, it would normally give the name of the school to which the child was sent. This is an entry for eight-year-old Beatrice Gertrude Heather. It tells us that Beatrice was the daughter of William Heather, who had worked in the railway clearinghouse for 27 years before he died in 1892, leaving a wife and eight children. His wife was also uh, dead at this point, and the RBI were paying for Beatrice to attend the Gloucester Grove Board School in South Kensington, as well as making payments to other members of her family. So here we have records of an eight-year-old girl in these railway records, where you would probably least like, likely to expect to find her. The minutes of the RBI can also include mention of railway employees or their wives and children, and they record notes on the death or remarriage of members and even payments for funerals. So that's the fourth type of record. The fifth type of record are sickness registers or absence registers or accident registers. And I mean accidents to people rather than trains here. Some companies kept records of accidents, who was hurt, who was to blame. Others kept registers where people were, were listed who were sick. And it gives them the name, the rank, the station, how long they've been absent for, and the cause of it. There's one particularly interesting example I found in these records. This is for the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company. It tells the story of Alice Golding, who in 1919 was a Glober working at Manchester's Victoria Station. A Glober was someone who was required to climb up onto the roofs of the carriages and light the lamps from the top, from the outside, where the light would shine down into the carriage inside. Now, this station had an overhead traveller which was kind of like a train in itself, which transported parcels across the roof of the station, literally over the tops of trains, suspended under the roof. It was electric, but each basket was controlled by a boy, driving the traveller and delivering the parcels. But the clearance was as little as two to three feet above the roofs of the carriages. On the 26th of February, 1919, Alice was working on top of one of the carriages lighting the lamps, when she was struck by one of these travellers and thrown into the six-foot way. That's the way the gap between the two trains. And unfortunately, she died of her injuries. Now, the boy was travelling backwards at the time 
and he was six foot away from her when he saw her, but these carriages took at least 12 feet to stop. The following month, the carriage and wagon department issued a notice to staff which advised those required to work on the roofs of carriages that if the carrier should come upon them suddenly, injury can be avoided by immediately lying down flat on the roof of the carriage. They also decided to fit loud horns to the overhead travellers after this incident. So, are any of these records available online? Well, yes. Um, records for the larger companies, companies such as the Great Western, Great Central, London Northeastern, and so on, they've been copied and made available on Ancestry. You can search these records by name, by year of birth, by event year, by station, or by company. Now, let's look at some other sources in which you might find individuals mentioned. I've got four more examples here. The first of which are rent rolls. Now, I don't think there are too many of these, but some company records may include rent rolls. What these relate to are properties owned by railway companies. If you go back to the very start of the railways, um, some lines would travel through fairly open countryside where there were no houses, there were no towns or anything, and they would, they would need to refuel. So they would need someone to man a station. That person would need a house. He would probably have a wife. They may have children, so they'd need a school. They'd go to church. They'd need a shop and so on. So the railway company would provide all of these buildings and a mini town would, would evolve. Towns such as Wolverton, Peterborough, Swindon or Crewe, they would be railway towns and a large amount of property in these towns would be, would be owned by the companies and rented out to the employees. And that's what a rent roll is. So you can find rent rolls just by searching on the catalogue for rent roll for the company that you're interested in and you may find... Um, a paternalistic employer providing housing, schools, hospitals, churches and civic buildings for their workers. So these rent rolls, basically they list people renting properties owned by the railway companies. Now, railway accidents. These are accidents to trains or involving trains as well as humans. Now, hundreds of workers were killed each year on the railways. For example, in the three years between 1874 and 1876, 2,249 workers were killed. That's two per day, and more than 10,000 injured. And it's worth, it's worth checking local newspapers for reports on these incidents and for the names of the victims. Later on, in the 10 years between 1918 and 1927, the average deaths on railways per year were 470, with 2,314 injuries. So that's nine deaths per week. So it's gone down slightly, but it's still quite surprising. We have official accident reports here at the National Archives in Rail 1053. These were sent in by the railway inspecting officers and compiled into parliamentary reports. Not all accidents were recorded or given their own report, but for the serious accidents you're usually likely to find a report. You can search our catalogue for over 7,000 major accidents in Rail 1053, 
You can search by location and date, but not by name of person. However, that is a tiny fraction, and the majority of the major accidents and minor accidents are not catalogued yet. We're working on it at the moment, but at the moment, what you would do is if you can't find it listed on the catalogue, you'd have to order the relevant rail 1053 up and um, order it up by date and then work through it and see if you can find the entry. In one annual volume of rail 1053, there are likely to be around 1,260 accidents recorded. And there are 378 volumes covering the period from 1840 to 1975. There are other records in which you will find accidents reported. MT6, that's Correspondence of the Ministry of Transport. MT29, Railway Inspectorate Reports. And MT114, which are Papers of the Railway Inspectorate. These are more difficult to manage and negotiate, but um, they may still give you useful information on the relevant accident. Some railway companies themselves maintained railway accident registers. There's one for the Great Eastern Railway in Rail 227, and these record accidents both serious and minor. Now, we come on to the subject of the British Transport Historical Records Card Index. This is an often forgotten resource here at the National Archives. It's, a, it's basically a card index to all the records of the smaller railway companies that were taken over by the larger companies, which were then nationalised in 1948 to the Big Four, and all the records handed over to the British Transport Commission and held in a warehouse in Paddington. The card index is basically a card index to these records. The Public Record Office took over Paddington in 1972 and the records were transferred to Kew in 1977 along with the card index. The card index currently lives just outside the main reading room on the first floor here at Kew in a series of metal cabinets. Most of the cards are under place name, railway company or station name but there is a section simply for staff records. The references on the cards need to be converted into current National Archives references. This can be tricky, but with the aid of the finding aid on top of the cabinets or Cliff Edwards' railway book, at the back of which an appendix, you can find um, a conversion chart which will help you translate the reference into a current reference. You can also type the old reference into the catalogue and sometimes it will find the record for you either as a, a former reference or it will find it as a reference, a current reference. If it has lib or per, lib or per on the card you just need to put a z in front of it and these items were in the BTHR library originally, so they're not classed as, well, they are classed as documents now, but they weren't, they were library material previously. Now, are you likely to find a photograph of your railway ancestor? Well, with a bit of perseverance and luck, you may do. The obvious source for this would be the railway magazines. The National Archives holds a wide collection of railway staff magazines with titles like the Railway Gazette, London Midland Scottish Magazine, 
Railway Chronicle and the Great Eastern Railway magazines. These were produced by the different railway companies from the earliest days of the railways. They include photographs of trains, stations and people, articles of interest to railway historians, small biographies of retired or deceased staff, new appointments and resignations, promotions, retirements, awards. And they often have employee photos and information on staff who have transferred from one station to another or who have joined another railway company. They're particularly useful for the First World War period. Many railwaymen would leave the railway company to join the Royal Engineers uh, and work on the railways in France and Belgium. So what you tend to find in these railway magazines is a photograph and perhaps a paragraph about each person as they leave and join the army. Then, sadly, if they're killed abroad, there'll be an obituary for them again with another paragraph and a photograph. And this runs alongside the normal comings and goings of the staff on the railway concern. So you'll still find people uh, with obituaries when they're having died and um, people retiring again with a photograph. So you, you may find that there's a photograph of someone and a paragraph related to them in these records when you can't find a service record in the usual army service records. Railways overseas. Um, Britain played a, played a part in developing railways overseas, particularly for British colonies, but little information is held on railway staff working overseas, either those temporarily seconded from a British railway or those permanently employed abroad. Occasional references to individuals may be found amongst the records of the Colonial Office, the Dominions Office or the Foreign Office, and you would use the appropriate finding aids for that. For the British Transport Police, staff records are not here at the National Archives. The British Transport Police hold several thousand staff record cards going back to 1880, but these are not complete. The best thing to do is to check out their website, which is www.btp.police.uk. For London transport workers, some early records are held at the London Metropolitan Archives, and for others, you would need to contact Transport for London. Trade unions, that's another source for information on railway workers. Many railway workers will have belonged to one trade union or another. Um, again, we don't have them here, but you can contact the Modern Records Centre at the University of Warwick where they're held. Suggested further reading. I've chosen four books here. Uh, the first one is Fire and Steam, A New History of the Railways by Christian Woolmar. That's a good overview of the development of the railways in Britain. Secondly, Railway Ancestors, A Guide to the Staff Records of the Railway Companies of England and Wales from 1822 to 1947 by David Hawkins. Thirdly, Railway Records, A Guide to Sources by Cliff Edwards. And lastly, Tracing Your Ancestors in the National Archives by Amanda Bevan, which has a large chapter on the railway records held here. So, to sum up then, to find a staff record for your railwayman, if you know the full name of your railway ancestor and you know the name of the railway company which employed him or her, 
then your search will be a lot easier. Without these facts, searches are still possible, but more time-consuming. The way I would recommend approaching it is to find out where they lived, find out which railway company served that area, check whether the records are on Ancestry, if not, use the research guide to find the rail series for that company. Thank you very much for listening. This talk was recorded on the 20th of February 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.